Good morning, Haynes Creek. It is good to be with you this morning. Glad you're here. Glad you are worshiping with us. And uh, it's a good day, y'all. It's a good day. So we're going we're gonna to continue what we started last week. So last week, if you weren't here, we started a brand new sermon series walking verse by verse through the New Testament letter of Philippians. And I love, I love this book. I love this letter. There is so much good stuff in Philippians. And, and we're going we're gonna to dig deep together. We're going to walk slowly through this book over the, the coming weeks and months. And, and last week, Last week, we kind of did just a high-level overview of the book. We did some background work, what's going on in the Philippian church, what's going on in the life of Paul, the author of this letter. Uh, you know, why did you write it? When did you write it? All that good stuff. And we looked at the first two verses, this, this greeting that Paul gives uh, at the beginning of all of his letters. You know, Philippians is no different. So if you missed last week, uh, please catch up with us. You can uh, listen to our podcast. You can watch the service on our YouTube page as well. So uh, get caught up with that if you missed last week. And one of the things that we, that we saw is already at the beginning of this letter, Paul uh, is expressing his, his love towards the Philippian church. I mean, this is a church that he is extremely close with. And what we talked about last week and, and what we saw in our, in our series through the book of Acts, for those that were with us for that, is the beginning of the Philippian church. It was really planted in adversity, right? We see some really cool stuff at the beginning of the planting of the Philippian church, but they, they meet adversity. Paul and Silas meet adversity really quick. And we see in Acts chapter 16, when this church was planted, uh, Paul and, and Silas found uh, a lot of uh, persecution in the town of Philippi. They were beaten severely. They were thrown in prison for really no reason at all. So this, this church was planted in adversity. We see in other parts of the New Testament that uh, there was something going on in this region of Macedonia in Philippi. After it was planted, they were facing some sort of financial hardships and poverty and things like that. It was just a lot of adversity. And there's something about adversity that, that draws people together, right? I mean, think about your own life. Maybe it's, it's in work where you go through a stressful season or a big project and you're spending all this time with other people, with your coworkers. Now it'll either drive you crazy or it'll bond you together tighter. Uh, I think about uh, my wife who's a teacher and, and you walk through the crucible that is the school year for teachers and you have uh, these other teachers that you're teaching with and it just kind of bonds you together, right? And that's what's going on with Paul here. He is bonded together with this Philippian church in, in a really tight way. And we just see his affection for this church expressed not only here in Philippians, but, but all throughout other places in the New Testament. So the, these next couple of weeks, as we kind of walk slowly through these introductory comments from Paul, we're going to see just how much he cares and loves the Philippian church. And I think a lot of that was born out of the adversity that they faced at the beginning of this church. So like I said, we're going to continue on in these, these introductory comments from Paul. So we're going to pick back up where we left off last week. So that's Philippians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 3. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Philippians chapter 1. And we're going to read through uh, verse 6 today. So yeah, I know we're going a long ways here. Uh, so we're covering four verses. Um, so Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Or if you don't own a Bible, please take one of our Bibles out there at our welcome table. That is our gift to you. You please take one of those before you go home. So Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, it says this. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. 
I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Okay, well, so let's, let's stop there. So after his introductory comments last week where he says, hey, this is, this is Paul, Timothy's with me, I'm writing to you, these believers in Philippi, grace and peace to you. He, he starts, the next thing he says is he starts to show gratitude and give thanks to these Philippian believers. And this is pretty standard for Paul. We look at his 13 letters in the New Testament. Nine of the 13 letters have some part in those introductory comments, the first chapter of that letter. He has some place where he is expressing gratitude to the people that he is writing. And that, that's, like I said, no difference here in, in Philippians. He's, he's expressing his gratitude right here at the beginning to God for these Philippians, and there's, there's three things that we can learn about expressing gratitude, about giving thanks from Paul in these uh, few verses here. So the first one, if you're taking notes, first point. First thing that we learn about gratitude, or the first thing we see about gratitude from Paul is this. He is giving thanks in prayer. Giving thanks in prayer. He's giving thanks in prayer. So he starts out in verse 3, and he says that every time he remembers the Philippians, he gives thanks to God for them. He gives thanks to God. Every time he thinks about them, every time he remembers them, he thanks God for them. And this gratitude that Paul has for this Philippian church is expressed first and foremost in his prayer, in his prayer towards the Philippians. Look again at verse 4. Verse 4, he says, he's always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer. Always praying for all of you in every prayer. I mean, it's kind of repetitive here from Paul, but he's not being, you know, unnecessarily repetitive like sometimes for me when I'm trying to find the words and we just say the same thing over and over again. I'm sure you guys don't do that at all. I'm sure the only one that struggles with that. So Paul's not doing that here. Like, he's, he's choosing these repetitive words for a reason. He's, he's drawing emphasis to this idea of, of praying for the Philippians and thanking God for the Philippians. So he's, he's always praying for all of them with every prayer. What he's saying here is like, I'm, no, guys, I'm, I, like, I'm not just kidding here. Like, I, I truly am actually praying for you and thanking God for you. He's emphasizing this. And what we can see from Paul is this is just one of the many places throughout all of Scripture where gratitude and prayer are linked together. Gratitude and prayer go hand in hand. We see this in several different places. One of my favorite ones is, is Colossians 4, 2. Paul writes this. He says, devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. So this is devote yourselves. Persist in prayer. Be consistent in your prayer. Stay alert. Stay focused in your prayers. And the way to do that is with thanksgiving. The way to do that, the way to, to stay consistent in our prayer life which again, maybe I'm the only one that struggles with consistency in prayer life. But the way to do that is with thanksgiving, is with gratitude. They're linked together here. The way we devote in prayer, the way we consist in prayer is through our gratitude, is with thanksgiving. Psalm 100 verse 4 puts it this way. It says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. Church, if we want to step into the presence of God, which I think is the desire for all of us who claim the name of Jesus, who have put our faith in Jesus, we would all say, yes, I want to be in the presence of God. Not, not just when we come to worship on Sunday, but, but on my own, in my devotional time, every morning, every evening, whatever it is, I want to be in the presence of God. Well, how do we enter the presence of God? Thanksgiving, gratitude, giving thanks to God. This is one of the ways that, that we draw close to him is through our gratitude. So we enter God's presence with thanksgiving. We enter his courts with praise and giving thanks to him. 
So, so beyond just that, beyond just the, 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 the prayer and gratitude go hand in hand, Paul's teaching us four things about praying here in this one little verse here. This one little verse in verse four teaches us four things about prayer. First thing we learn from Paul is it says that, he, that he's always praying. He's always praying. He's always praying. Now, now does that mean that, that Paul only is praying? That's the only thing he does? Is, is he only praying for the Philippians? He doesn't pray for anybody else. It's only the Philippians? No. No, that's not what that means. We know what he, uh, what he means here is that, that, man, he's consistently praying for them. That when he does think about them, he stops what he's doing. He pauses for a moment and, and thanks God for the Philippians. And this is not just a, a one-time prayer for Paul. This is something that's happening over and over again. This is a continual prayer for him. So it's not like Paul is, you know, ministering wherever he is or, or sitting, like, like right now when he's writing this, he's, he's in prison in Rome. And it's not like, okay, prayed for the Philippians. Cool, done with that. Let's move on. Let's pray for something else. Let's do something else. Okay, prayed for them. Check that off my list. Now I'm moving on. No, this is a, a continual, ongoing prayer and gratitude for the Philippians. That's what he means when he says that, that he's always praying. Now, what we can draw from that is, is that's what our prayer life is supposed to look like, right? Is it's a consistent and a continual prayer, not just for the things in our lives, but, but for one another, for those that we're praying for. This is what Jesus calls us to. Like, he wants us to be persistent in prayer, to keep on praying. And Paul demonstrates that here with the Philippians. So first he says he's always praying. Then he says that he's praying for, for all of you. For all of you. He's praying for all the believers in the church in Philippi, right? He's not just praying for his favorite people. He's not just praying for the people that he likes and doesn't like. Now, look, Philippians is, is not, you know, the disaster of a church that the Corinthian church is. Like, when we walk through 1 Corinthians, it's like, oh, man, these people got a lot of problems. Like, Philippians isn't, isn't quite there, but they're not a perfect church by any means either. Like, we're going to, as we walk through this letter, we're going to see some of the issues that they're struggling with. And one of the big ones is unity. I mean, Paul even calls out two women by name. I mean, think about that for a minute. Like, your names are forever put in Scripture because you were having an argument with one another. And Paul calls you out by name and says, hey, stop that. Stop fighting. Forgive each other and get past it, right? Like, that's just crazy to think about. But this church had some problems. Now, Paul's not just going, hey, I'm praying for these certain people or those certain people or the people that I like or the people that are listening to him and and following him or whatever. No, he's praying for everybody. He's praying for everybody. And that, again, teaches us something. We are are to pray for all the believers, for for all those that we are in life with, in community life. We don't just pray for the people that we like, the people that we agree with, the people that like us or treat us well. Like, no, we got to pray for everybody. We pray for all people, all believers. And Paul also says that that he's always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer. Again, this kind of seems repetitive here, but what what Paul is doing here is, is a little unique. Paul, for, for that word prayer that he uses twice in this, that that's translated always praying in, in my every prayer, that word for prayer is a little unique. It's not the word that's typically used for prayer in our New Testament. And he, he uses this word that specifically means uh, either urgent needs or a specific request. Urgent needs, specific requests. So when he says, I'm praying for you, it's not just that, that general, I mean, you know, look, look, let's be honest, how, how, when people are like, hey, pray for me, and we're like, oh yeah, I'll be praying for you. It's just like this general prayer, like, yeah, sure, pray, you know, Jesus, I pray for them, and that's it. No, Paul's like, no, 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 I'm not just this, it's not just this general prayer, it's a specific prayer. I'm praying for your specific requests. I'm praying for your urgent needs. Like, again, this shows the depth of relationship that they have, that Paul knows specifically what's going on, and he's praying for them. 
And again, we, we can learn something from that, that we need to pray specifically for one another, and we need to ask others to pray specifically for us. Now, look, I know that that can open us up a little bit, right? That, that means that if we're going to ask for specific requests, that means we got to be a little bit more vulnerable, a little bit more open and honest with each other. And that doesn't always come easy. Like, it's, it's tempting, hey, how can I pray for you? And just to give this, oh, you know, just for my family or for work or, you know, we just kind of give these, these general high-level things. You know, sometimes I feel like, well, let me just do that so I don't overburden these people that are asking for prayer. But I think people ask for prayer because we actually want to pray for you and, and with you. So let's, let's give specific requests. Let's be a little bit more open and vulnerable so that those people in our lives that actually truly want to pray for us can pray for these specific requests, just like Paul is modeling here. So he prays consistently and continually for these people. He prays for all of them, and he prays specific requests. And the last thing we see here is that he prays with joy. He says, always praying with joy. With joy. This is the first mention of joy in Philippians. And we're going to see this theme over and over and over again. That's why we titled this series, Finding Joy. Because Paul talks a lot about finding joy in Christ in these four little chapters, in this little letter. He brings it up a lot. We're going to see this over and over again. And here is the first instance of it. And Paul calls us as believers to, to have joy in prayer. To have joy in prayer. And look, see, when Scripture, when the Bible talks about joy, and when Paul talks about joy in Philippians, he's not talking about it the way that we typically talk about it. See, often we, we just equate joy with, with a feeling of emotion, right? We kind of just equate it with happiness. And we know with feelings, emotions, they, they can come and go based on our mood and based on our circumstances. But joy goes beyond that. Joy is not a feeling or an emotion that comes and goes and changes at the, the, the wind, right? Like, that's not how it works. Joy is an attitude that we are commanded to have. And we're going to see that in Philippians. Paul is going to command us to rejoice, to have joy. And remember, remember what's going on with Paul. And we're going to talk about this a lot. Like, you're going to get sick and tired of me telling you this, but it's so important for us. Remember what's going on with Paul. Paul is sitting in prison in Rome. And he's awaiting a trial before the most powerful person of the world. He is going to stand trial before the emperor, the Caesar of Rome. And you talk about moods changing based on, like, what if Paul got before Caesar and he was just, like, having a bad day? You know, one of his servants messed up his coffee order that day. I don't know. Like, he's just struggling, just in a bad mood, didn't get enough sleep that night, whatever. And Paul, here comes Paul, talking about Jesus and salvation and grace. And this guy could have just been like, nah. I can't handle this guy right now. Like, get him out of here. Just kill him. Be done with it. I don't, I don't have time for him. Could have easily said that. Like, Paul has no idea what the future holds. He has no idea what's going to happen when he stands before Caesar. I mean, just try to imagine being in that situation. You are in prison, by the way, for doing nothing wrong. Paul has broken zero laws. There is no reason for him to be in prison, yet he's in prison awaiting the same trial before the most powerful person who could just, on a whim, say, eh, kill him, whatever, I don't care. And yet Paul is going to continually show us what it means to have joy in that circumstance. 
See, having joy in Christ is not tied to our circumstances, and it's not tied to our mood and our emotions. It can go beyond that. It's an attitude that we can choose to have. And we can do that, right? We can, we can choose to change our attitude. Now, my wife could give you story after story about how often she has to tell me that to change my attitude. Because, look, y'all, there's some days where I got a bad attitude, and I'm just whatever, in a, in a funk, in a bad mood, for whatever, for really no reason at all. I've got no reason to be in a bad mood. You know, maybe I'm a little tired, worn down. Whatever it is, I'm choosing in that moment to have a bad attitude. And she can rightfully say, hey, snap out of it. Get it together. It's the same conversation we have with our kids. Like, sometimes they're just, like, angry for no reason. It's like you're, you're seven or you're two. Like, you have everything handed to you and you have a great life. Like, you ha- literally have no reason to be in a bad mood. And yet, for whatever reason, they do. And what do we tell our kids? Hey, choose a better attitude. Get a better attitude. Now, why do we say that? Why does my wife tell me that? Because I can choose to have a different attitude. So what we're going to see over and over again when we talk about joy in Philippians is that we can choose joy. That joy in Christ can go beyond our mood, can go beyond our feelings, can go beyond our circumstances, can go beyond what is working or not working out in our lives in this moment. Too often we connect those things. We've got to stop doing that. So that's, this is the, again, the first mention of what we're going to see over and over and over again in Philippians. So, so Paul says that, that he, is, he is praying with joy. He has joy in this moment, sitting in prison with his fate in the hands of Caesar. And he can say, I have joy. And man, when I think about you, Philippians, when I pray for you, it fills me with joy. And Paul calls us to have that kind of joy. And if, if we are going to have that kind of joy, it comes with prayer. It comes with prayer. It comes with centering our hearts and our minds and our lives on Jesus. It comes with seeing Jesus first and not our circumstances, not our mood. Being reminded of who Jesus is and all that he's done for us, that fills us with joy. And prayer is, is the way we get there. We get there through prayer. This is the first thing that Paul shows us. I mean, when we talk about gratitude, prayer has to be right there with him. So Paul shows us right away that he's giving thanks, and he does that through prayer. The second thing we see about giving thanks here from Paul is he gives thanks for partnership. He's giving thanks for partnership. Giving thanks for partnership. Look again at verse 5. So he says, you know, I, I give thanks for God every time I remember you. I'm always praying for you in my every prayer with joy. Verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So why is he giving thanks? Why is he filled with joy? Why is he constantly praying for the Philippians? It's because of the partnership in the gospel that they have. Partnership in the gospel. Now, the word that Paul uses for partnership is the Greek word koinonia. And if you've been in church for any length of time, you've probably heard a pastor like me get up and talk about koinonia, right? It's typically translated fellowship or community. It's this relationships that we are to have with one another in the church. We are to have koinonia. And that's the word that Paul uses here when it's translated partnership. It's the Greek word koinonia. And again, this is, this is used throughout the New Testament to talk about the relationships that we are to have in the church, now, we're, we're going to dig into this more next week, so I'm not really going to talk about too, too much about this. So I'm going to make one little point, and then we'll, we'll move on to the next thing. But we're going to talk, like I said, come back next week. We're going to dig into this concept of community and relationships and partnership within the church. What does is, what is koinonia actually look like, and how is that modeled here with the Philippians? 
But today I want, I want to focus on, on Paul expressing gratitude for that koinonia, for that partnership. So again, why is Paul filled with gratitude? Why is he filled with prayer and joy for these Philippians? It's because of this partnership. He's specifically thanking them for this partnership in the gospel. Partnership in the gospel. That, that refers to the, the partnership that they have in ministry. And, and Paul says from, from the first day until now, so from the very beginnings of this church, the Philippians have truly been partners in ministry. They're, they're doing ministry together. They're sharing the gospel together. They're reaching out together. They're doing everything together. And Paul says that that has continued on. The Philippians are continuing as partners in ministry, meaning they're, they're following God's mission for the church in Philippi, and they're also continuing to partner with Paul, even though he's not there. Again, we're going to see this throughout the book of Philippians. One of the reasons he's writing is to tell them thank you for their support, that they have sacrificially, time and time again, supported Paul in his missionary work. So they, they truly are partners. When he says it, man, they, they truly have this, this deep connection with one another. And it's built out of this partnership. And Paul's saying, thank you. Thank you for that. And again, this church isn't perfect. They've got issues. They've got some struggles. Paul's having to deal with some stuff, even with this church that he loves so much. And yet he can still say, thank you. He can still have gratitude for them and for one another. And church, we're, we're, we're to be grateful for one another as well. We are to be grateful for this church. We're to be grateful for one another. Just like Paul says, every time he thinks about it, he shows gratitude. He expresses thanks to God. It's the same for us. Every time we should think about one another, every time we, we think about Haynes Creek, we should say, man, God, th thank you. Thank you for this. Now, is this a perfect church? No. No, and if you're like newer here and you're still in that kind of honeymoon phase and you're like, no, Travis, this really is everything we want in a church, give me time, man. I will let you down. I will disappoint you. We will let you down. It's, it's going to happen. Prepare yourself. We are not the perfect church. Are we always going to do and be everything that you want us to do and be? No. Is it going to be and do everything that I want it to be? No. That's not the point of the church. That's not why we have gratitude for one another. We have gratitude because the Lord has brought us together in this family that he calls the church. And he's blessed us with one another, even though we're not perfect, even though we let each other down from time to time. We can still be grateful. We can still think about the church, think about one another and say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for these people. Thank you for this place. We need to be grateful for one another. Grateful. So we see Paul gives thanks through prayer. He gives thanks for partnership. And the last thing he gives thanks for is assurance. So Paul shows us giving thanks in assurance. Verse 6. Now, there's a lot of, like, you can call them one-liners, whatever, just memorable verses all throughout Philippians. They get quoted all the time. And I think verse 6 is, is up there near the top as one of those things. That, I mean, we just love this verse, right? So let's read it again. Verse 6. I am sure of this that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Man, what a beautiful verse. What an awesome verse. Let's dig into this. Like, like Paul is, is expressing gratitude here for the assurance that he has in Jesus for himself, for these believers, and for this church. So let's dig into what, what he's, he's talking about here. So he starts out and says, I am certain of this. What that phrase means 
is whatever he's about to say, he has full confidence in. 100% confidence in what he's about to say. And this is not a, I just have confidence right now, and then tomorrow we'll see what happens. No, he, he is 100% certain of this, and it's an ongoing certainty. It's an ongoing confidence. So what Paul is saying here is what I'm about to tell you, I have full confidence in today. I'm going to have it tomorrow, the next day, 10 years from now, 10 decades from now, forever and ever and ever. I am confidence, confident in this. I am sure of this. Now, what's he so confident in? That he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And there, there's two phrases here that really stand out to me that I think help us kind of understand what's going on in this and why he's so sure. And that's, that's good work and then completion until the day of Christ Jesus. What's the good work that God started and what is he carrying on to completion? Well, let's, let's talk about that. So the good work, let's start there. The, the good work that God began, and really the, these two words kind of function on two different levels. So good work and completion function as, as individual believers and also corporately as a church. So we're going to talk about both of those. So what does good work here mean for the individual believers? The good work that Paul's referring to is the good work of salvation. It's God saving us. And he is the one that saves us. Salvation is his work. It's his doing. If God does not save us, church, we have no hope. We have no chance of salvation. We could never save ourselves. We could never do enough. We could never be good enough to earn God's righteousness and forgiveness and salvation. He's the one that saves us. It's his work. It's his doing. I'm not saved because of who I am. I'm not saved because of what I do or don't do. I'm not saved because of, of what I choose or don't choose. I am saved because of God's grace in my life. That's why I'm saved. Salvation is God's work. The good work that he begins is, is saving us, rescuing us, redeeming us, forgiving us, giving us the promise and the guarantee of eternal life. That's the good work. So when Paul writes that, that he who began a good work, that's what he's talking about. For us as individuals, he's talking about salvation. Now, what does it mean for us as a church? What does he, what does he mean when he, he's talking to these Philippian believers in the context of a local church? When he says that, that the good work that God began for the church is, is the beginning of that church, is the planting and the starting of that church. And it's the current ongoing ministry of that church. That's the good work. That's the good work that God is doing. That's what he's talking about here. When he says that, that God began a good work, he's talking about the church starting, the church beginning. That's why we plant churches. That's why we keep starting new churches, because this is God's good work. This is God's good work. God's, God's plan, God's vision for accomplishing his worldwide mission of saving people, of rescuing and making new disciples, his plan for accomplishing that is the local church. This is his good work. This is what he's doing. God is, has pushed all of his chips in on the local church. And you might think sometimes like I do, like, God, are you sure about that? You sure you're entrusting us to, to do your good work, to continue your mission, and to make disciples of all nations? Like, really? Why would you do that? Why would you do that, Lord? But he does. This is the good work. And this is, look, this is why we talk all the time, like, this is why we're putting so much time and energy and resources and money into building this church. Because the church is God's plan. 
The church is God's good work. This matters. This matters. And as we build the church, we're going we're gonna to see what, what the Lord does with that is when we build the church, he then goes out from that, right? He uses us to really truthfully accomplish his mission, not just here, but around the globe. And it all comes in and through and from the local church. This is his plan. This is his good work. All right, so what does he mean by completion? So we know what he's talking about when he he says good work. We know what that means now. When he says he who began a good work, we know what that means in us and in the church at large. Now, what's he mean by completion? So completion here, that word means the fulfillment of God's purposes. The fulfillment of God's purposes. So again, it's functioning on two, two different levels here as individual believers and at church at, at, at large, right? The, the individual local church. So what does he mean here by that? So what is God's purpose for our individual salvation? What is he promising to complete within us? Well, two things. One, we see this in 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23-24 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. Man, what a beautiful verse. What a beautiful promise there. So what, what is God saying he's going to do? He's going to complete the work of sanctification. Sanctification is a big word that we use in the church that, that really just means make us more like Jesus. And it's this lifelong process of us slowly but surely becoming more and more like Jesus. Now, you know, some days we take, you know, a few steps forward, and the next day we take like 25 more steps backward, and we got to start back over again. But, but that's the work. And God is saying that, that he is going to complete that. The finished work of sanctification, making us more like Jesus by the time we end our lives here on this earth, that's God's work. That's God's doing, and he promises to deliver on that. He will complete the work of sanctification in our hearts and lives. The next thing that we know that he will finish in, in us, that he will bring to completion, is this Romans 8, 29 through 30. It says, For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those who he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. God will bring us to glorification. God will bring us to the promised eternal life. And I love that Paul's writing this kind of in a past tense, like it's already done, it's already finished. Now, when we look at our salvation, we, we can know, okay, well, a lot of this has already been done. If I put my faith in Jesus, well, well I, I know that he's, he's foreknown me, he's predestined me, he's called me, and he's justified me. We know that those things, they're already done. You put your faith in Jesus, those have already been completed. And Paul says along with those that glorification is already done too. There's a sense that, that God's finished work, what he is ultimately doing in us and in the world, is that it's already done. Because just like what we read in 1 Thessalonians, he's faithful, he's gonna do it, he's gonna do what he says. And when he promises us eternal life, when he promises us eternity with him in complete perfection, it's, it's as if it's already done because God will do it. He will finish it. He will bring us to glorification. He will finish the work that he has started in us. It's done. It's done. So the completion of, of, of our good work is, is just that. It's that God will sanctify us and he will bring us to glorification. And with that, and one of the things that this verse teaches us is we're to have assurance. 
we are to have assurance of our salvation. God does not want us continually guessing and wondering, well, am I, am I good with God? Am, am I on the right track? Am I, am, I, am I really saved? Like, I know I prayed that prayer. I know I put my faith in Jesus. But like, did I say the right words? That I really mean it like, well, I just messed up this week. I just, you know, I've had a bad week, and, and maybe, maybe that means I'm not saved. Like, he doesn't want us living in that fear all the time. Like, that is not God's plan for us. He wants us, truly wants us to have assurance, to know without a doubt that I have put my faith in Jesus, and because of that, I am saved, and I have been forgiven, and I am promised eternal life. Like, he wants us to have assurance. First John 5 puts it this way. The one who has the Son has life. So if you put your faith in Jesus, you have the Son, and therefore you have life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know, so that you may have assurance, so that you may have confidence that you have eternal life. Believer, he he doesn't want us walking around wondering and second-guessing our faith and constantly worried if I'm truly saved, right? I always tell people that as a pastor, you have those conversations. Like, look, if you're even wondering that, you're probably good, okay? Because lost people don't walk around wondering if they're saved or wondering if they're going to make it to heaven. No, they don't care. They don't care. So even the fact that you, you care, like that, that tells me something. So let's start there. So he wants us to have assurance. He doesn't want us walking around wondering in fear. Am I good? Am I not good? Am I saved? Am I not saved? No, if you put your faith in Jesus, you have the son. If you have the son, you have life. You have eternal life. So that's the completion for us uh, uh, on an individual level. So when we're talking about what is God beginning the work and, and how is he bringing it to completion, this is what we're talking about. Now the main context of Philippians and the main context of verse 6 is, is that of the local church. It's, it's specific to the Philippian church. So let's kind of get into that level. What, what is Paul saying here? When he says, he who began a good work, again, we know what that means for the church. What does it mean that he's going to bring that to completion for this Philippian church? Well, it means that, that God's going to complete his purpose, his plan for the Philippian church. Whatever that plan may be, whatever purpose he has for the Philippian church, God is going to bring that to completion. And it's the same for us. It's the same for us at Haynes Creek. It's the same for any church in this area. God has a particular plan and purpose for this church. And we can trust and know that he is going to bring it to completion. He's going to finish whatever he wants to finish. Whatever he started, he's going to do it. Now, look, there's some things that we need to keep in mind as we're talking about assurance here. And one specific to churches is that every church is different. Every church is different. Like, I know it's easy and I know it's tempting to kind of look at other churches and be like, oh, well, you know, they do it this way and I would never, I would never do church that way. Or they focus on these things and that's just wrong. We just don't do that. Or, you know, well, they're, they're really big and that means, you know, these bad things. Or they're really small and that means these bad things. Like, maybe, I don't know, maybe. Every church is different though. That, that's the point. And, and what we need to remember is that God has a specific plan and purpose for every single church. And it might be. His plan might be for those churches that are really big to be really big. Like, they might be fulfilling God's purpose. The ones that are small might be fulfilling God's purpose. The ones that operate the way they're operating might be fulfilling God's purpose. We don't know. We don't know what we don't know, right? I constantly have to remind myself of that. But God has a specific plan and purpose for each church. 
So we can't walk around judging and pointing fingers and thinking that, you know, because we do whatever, that we're better than anybody else. Like, no, that, again, we're not perfect. No church is perfect. And keep that in mind. So, so every church is different. Another thing we need to keep in mind is that God says that he completes his work, not our work. He completes his work, not our work. He brings to completion his plan, his purpose, his agenda, not mine. Not mine. Look, we say this all the time around here. When it comes to following Jesus as an individual, as Travis, it means that, that I don't just kind of bring God along with whatever I'm doing. It's like, hey, God, I'm doing this, and, you know, I'll take your advice if and when I want to. And if it's good, cool. If it's not, I'm just going to keep doing my own thing. Like, that's not what it means to follow Jesus. That's not the life that he calls us to. It's not about me. Like, I can't, I can't stand seeing those bumper stickers that say, God is my co-pilot. No, wrong. God is not your co-pilot. God is the pilot, and we're in coach, just along for the flight. That's the, life of the, uh, that's the life of the Christian right there. That's what God calls us to. He's in charge. He's driving the bus. He's flying the plane, and we're just along for the ride. And we're just going, God, take me wherever you want to. Lead me wherever you want to. I'm going. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what it means to walk with him. That's what it means to be a believer. It's, it's his plan. It's his purpose. It's his agenda. It's not my plan. It's not my desires. It's not what I want. It's not my ambition. It's all about God. And it's the same for the church. It's the same for the church. God has his plan, his purpose, his agenda. It's not about us. It's not about us. This is not my church. This is not your church. This is Jesus' church. This is his church, and he has a plan. He has a purpose. He has an agenda, and we're to follow that. We're to follow that. It's not about what I want. It's not about what you want. We've, all, look, we've got no shortage of ideas on what we can and should be doing here. No shortage, all right? It's not about that. What does God have for us? What does God want for us? What is his plan? What is his vision, his agenda for the church at Haines Creek? Not Travis, not our elders, not you. It's about Jesus. We follow him. We walk with him. So he completes his work, not our work. And the last thing is that we need to keep in mind is, is we're not to be completely passive, right? God doesn't just tell us, hey, just sit back, relax, and don't do anything. Like, no, that, that's not the picture of, of the Christian life either. We don't just, oh, well, God said he's going to finish sanctification in my life, so guess what, Travis? I don't have to read my Bible. I don't have to pray. I don't have to go to church. I don't have to do anything I don't want to do because he's going to do it. So I just have to sit here, not do anything, and he'll, he'll do whatever he wants to do. Like, no, that, we're not called to, to passivity. No, we are called to active, consistent, regular, faithful obedience to Jesus. That's how he completes his work. It's through our responding to him in obedience. We talked about this a couple weeks ago when we ended our Habits of Grace series. This is what the Christian life looks like. It's that long obedience in the same direction. It's regularly walking with Jesus day in and day out. That's what he calls us to. It's the same with the church, right? He's given us a mission for the church. He's made clear. We want to know, like, what, God, what's your agenda for the church at Haines Creek? It's right here. It's right here. It's to love God, love others, and make disciples. That's what we're called to do. That's, what, that's his plan. That's his agenda. When we focus on that, when we're faithful to that, when we walk in obedience to that, 
we can have the kind of confidence that Paul's talking about here. But man, if we start to stray, if we start to go our own way, if we're starting, you know what, God, cool thought on that whole make disciples thing. Don't really like it. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to do my own version of that. I'm, I'm going to focus on what I want to focus on. We can't expect God to complete any work in us. And because we're doing our own thing. And he's like, hey, I'm, I'm over here. Whenever you want to come back, I'll, I'll be right here and we can get started again. But, but you're walking away. It's time to come back. Again, it's not about us. It's not about what we want. It's not about our plan, our agenda. It's about Jesus. It's his church. It's his plan. It's his purpose. It's his mission. And we walk in obedience to that. So that, that's the goal. That's the goal. And again, are we going to do that perfectly? No, no. But thankfully, there's a lot of grace. <laughs> thankfully, there's new mercies every day, right? Not, not just for us individually, but for us as a church too. So here in, in Philippians, in just these four little verses, we see Paul expressing gratitude. Expressing gratitude and giving thanks to God for the Philippians, for, for what God is doing in and through and, and, and with this church. And it's a lot of really cool stuff. There's a lot of amazing things that we're going to dig into as we keep going here. But, but Paul just stops. And I love that you just, before we get into anything else, let me just say thank you. Let me just say thank you. Let me just express gratitude. I mean, having a grateful heart goes a long way, church. It goes a long way in our lives and walking with Jesus. So we see here Paul's gratitude. It, it leads him to prayer. It leads him to prayer. And his, we see that his gratitude, it's, it's based on this deep love and affection and fellowship with the Philippians. And we also see that his gratitude is centered on the assurance of God's faithfulness. And that's really where gratitude starts. That, that's really where all of this starts. It starts with God. It starts with Jesus. Us being grateful people, us having a heart of thanksgiving and gratitude, it's centered on who Jesus is and all that he's done for us. That's where gratitude starts. We want to grow in gratitude. I mean, we gotta, we're going to get back to the gospel. We've got to remind ourselves of what Jesus has done in our hearts and lives, that he's, that he's saved us, that he's rescued us, that he's forgiven us, that he's given us life, that he's, that he's brought us into this family called the church. And is it messy? Yes. And do we annoy each other sometimes? Yes, but it's still a gift from God. And it's still a gift from God. And we need to be thankful for that. And we need to remember that, that he who started a good work, he's going to finish it. That we can have confidence and assurance of God's work in our lives. And, and like Paul, we, we can claim Romans 8, 38 through 39 when he writes this. It says, for I am persuaded. And the way to say that is I'm sure. I'm confident in this that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Y'all, God has done a great work in our lives. He has saved us, he has rescued us, and he is keeping us. He's keeping us. And he will complete his work. We should be overwhelmed with gratitude. We should be overwhelmed with thanksgiving. And that gratitude should be able to extend beyond our mood, beyond our feelings, beyond our circumstances. Because our God has done a lot in our lives. And we have a lot to be thankful for. Let's express that thanksgiving. Let's, let's give thanks to God. 
And in a minute, we're going to do that. I'm going to pray. Johnny and the band's going to come back up here and lead us in a couple more songs. And look, this is why we do that every single week. This is why we, we sing every single Sunday. And every time we gather, we're going to sing. Because worship is a way for us to express that gratitude. It's a way for us to say thank you to God for who he is and all that he's done. And with that, we're going to do what we always do. Every single Sunday when we end our, our sermon time, we earn, when we end this, this time of digging into God's word, we, we respond with worship and communion. And a big reason why we do communion is to give thanks. That, that phrase that Paul says here when he says, I give thanks to God, it's the Greek word, eucharisto. Eucharisto. And it's where we get the word Eucharist from. And maybe you've heard that term before. Eucharist is another word for communion, essentially. And it was, it's been used throughout the history of the church. And it comes from this Greek word here. And it originates from Jesus' own words in Luke twenty-two nineteen, when he is at the Last Supper, this Thursday night before he's arrested, before he goes to the cross, he has this last supper with his disciples where he institutes this practice of communion. And this is what he says, Luke twenty-two nineteen. 19. He took the bread, gave thanks. There's our word, Eucharisto. He gave thanks, he broke it, gave it to them and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So church, in a minute, I'm gonna pray. And believers in the room, we're going to enter into a time of worship and communion. Again, this is for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus. And again, one of the reasons why we are called to practice communion, to do communion, is to say thank you. That's what communion is. That's what the Eucharist is. It's a way to say thank you. When we take the bread and we take the cup, we eat and we drink, it is a, it is a time just to worship Jesus and express our gratitude. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for shedding your blood. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me, for forgiving me, for redeeming me. Thank you. So I'm gonna pray, and I would encourage each of you, if you put your faith in Jesus, I would encourage you, just take a minute. Just take a few minutes in prayer. Take as long as you need, and just say thank you. Just take some time to express gratitude to God for who he is and for all that he's done in your life. And then as you're ready, you go to either side of the room, you take, you eat, we drink, and we praise our good God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let me pray for us, and we're gonna enter into this time of communion and worship and gratitude. Jesus, I say this a lot when I pray, but Lord, it feels a little weightier today. It's not just words, but, but thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for who you are. Thank you, Lord, that you are holy, that you are righteous, that you are loving, that you are kind, that you are gracious, that you are merciful. Lord, thank you that you're a patient God. Lord, thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for for leaving heaven to come here to die on a cross and, and save us. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for the peace that you give. Thank you for the joy that you give. Thank you for, 
for not saving us and leaving us to do life on our own. Lord, thank you for the community that is the church. Thank you for this body of believers. Thank you for the church at Haines Creek and all that you're doing here, Lord. So Jesus, we love you and we thank you for who you are and all that you've done. It's your name we pray. Amen.